Well, good morning, if you're watching on Sunday morning. If not, good afternoon or evening, whatever it is for you. Um, it is an interesting time to be preaching, and so here I am speaking to a room of no one. Uh, but I am glad that you're watching, and I hope that you will find this encouraging. A um, couple things as we get started, a little bit different uh, than a normal sermon. going to be more of a devotional, and I'm going to, I asked Kip, uh, if I could go ahead and speak for an hour and a half, since that's what it would take to do this and for us to all have a lot of fun. He said no, that you actually have a shorter attention span uh, on the internet, so we will just um, try to keep it shorter. At different points, I'm going to give you passages that you might want to stop the movie, stop the uh, video, and um, with your family, go look at that or go read that on your own, and then come right back. A um, couple other things before we get started. Um, first is that if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1270. And if you are using a pew Bible, you've probably stolen a pew Bible and you should um, return that. Yeah, okay, good. Glad that you're all with me there. Um, so occasionally, if I feel like you're not responding well enough, I'll use the laugh track. Um, also, just last little thing, um, during this time of coronavirus, I've seen some jokes. There's some really um, prime joke material for Pilot and his hand washing. Uh, so I want to just use that up right now. It comes at too serious a time in the story. Um, so we won't make that joke later, but I uh, wanted to make sure that I got that one in. This morning we are starting in John 12. And by the end of our talk, we will... Um, answer the crucial question of is um, that, that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So we're looking at the conversation between Pilate and Jesus immediately before his crucifixion, and that's the question that we're going to land on, are you the king of the Jews? But that question is not asked in a vacuum or answered in a vacuum, and in John we've been trying to understand what John is doing and the flow of his thought. So I want you to back up with me to John 12, and we're going to just move through the triumphal entry very, very quickly. Um, we're not going to address everything of that last week, but I want to um, give you some thoughts um, that you can uh, be contemplating in, in this season. So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and so in chapter 12, he is with Lazarus and his sisters, and um, Mary anoints his body with expensive perfume that she had. And the disciples are astonished at it. They feel like it's a huge waste of money. Um, Judas, of course, wanted the, the perfume in order to sell it and um, steal some of that money. Uh, but Jesus says that he has been anointed for the, for the day of his burial. And so right here at the beginning of this Passover week, we see that Jesus is saying that his death is inevitable. There is an inevitability to Jesus' crucifixion. And that sets the tone of the entire, um, of the entire week and our entire discussion and John's treatment of it. Um, so we move right from that to the triumphal entry itself, verse 12. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast... Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, or, O oh, save, uh, save us, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming and seated on a donkey's colt. And John goes on to say that his disciples didn't understand um, the historical illusions um, that they were experiencing, but later they did. So what are those um, historical illusions? This is a place where you might want to just pause and go back and read these because um, they're pretty amazing. But the first is the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. That is reminding us of Psalm 118. And if you were to turn to Psalm 118, which I'll do right now, that's the fastest I ever turned to anything. Um, that's verses 22, and uh, or it picks up around verse 22. The, the builder, the stone that the builder rejected has become the capstone. Um, the Lord has done this. It's marvelous in his eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, uh, referring to this day of intervention of Jesus coming. And then it says, O Yahweh, save us. O Yahweh, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, or from the house of Yahweh, we bless you. Um, and it goes on, and the next couple verses um, are these. Yahweh is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Remember that Jesus called himself the light of the world in John's Gospel. With boughs in hand, joined in this festival procession. And so there's the palm branches, the boughs uh, of branches. And so they're waving these. These are patriotic symbols. They're like flags for the Jewish people. Join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. And so they are moving towards the altar for this day of atonement. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His love endures forever. Um, and so we have this uh, psalm in which the goodness of Yahweh is proclaimed over and over. If you start at the beginning of the, of the um, psalm, you see that it's repeated there several times. Um, and it talks about the sacrifice being brought to the altar. And of course, that sacrifice is Jesus. And so we see here at this triumphal entry, the kind of king that people wanted. The king that people wanted was this powerful king who was going to throw out their enemies, who was going to bring about the day of the Lord, um, who was going to be a political figure, who was going to rule over them. And of course, we're going to find out that that's not the king that they get right now. Um, and then the donkey is very interesting, and this is one where there's quite a bit of uh, reading to do. But you could turn, and we're not, I'm not going to, but you could turn to Zechariah 9, 9, and that's where this reference comes from. But if you were to read from 9 through chapter 14 of Zechariah, a book that you probably haven't read lately, um, you will see the entire um, scope of Messiah's ministry from the time he enters at this triumphal entry to, the, to his return at the end of all things. You see that summed up in those chapters. And so it's, it's pretty amazing. And it just highlights the fact that the Jewish people were looking for this king who was gonna rescue them, but they didn't understand who they were going to get. Because even in Zechariah, it talks about the fact that they will look on the one whom they have pierced, that they are going to um, hurt, damage, slay the, the, the Messiah. And um, so they missed that. They missed Isaiah, by his stripes you were healed. They missed Daniel, which told us that the Messiah was going to be cut off. Um, so it's understandable on that side of history that they would have missed that. Uh, from our side, we get to see it, um, I think, pretty clearly. So John is setting up Jesus as king. 
um, set over against the inevitability of his crucifixion. And we see the kind of king that the um, Jewish people wanted. So that's our context, that's, the, that's that week. And then we get Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And I would love to just uh, really unpack the next several chapters before we get to 18, but we don't have time, apparently. Um, but I want you to pick up on chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, A new command I give you. So this is Jesus, I think, as king, embracing his right to give commandments to his people. And he says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment. That was, um, in fact, part of the great commandment in the Old Testament, that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that they were to love um, their neighbor as themselves. So loving each other is not a new commandment. But what is new, I think, is the um, scope of love that is called for. So let's read the rest of this. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's different about this command to love than the great commandment, I think, is that we are called to love each other, not as we love ourselves, which is a pretty selfish sort of love. Um, it's a looking out for my best interest sort of love. And instead, we are supposed to love each other as Jesus has loved us. Which by the time we get to the end of this, uh, we'll, we'll return back to this issue of love. But what an incredibly high, uh, seemingly unreachable bar is the kind of love Jesus has demonstrated for us. Um, Self-sacrificing love. Not the kind of love we show towards ourselves, which is self-gratifying, um, but self-sacrificing. And that's what Jesus has called his people to. And that is a measure by which we can determine whether we are really his disciples, is are we loving each other that way? And it is a way that other people will get to see that we really are Jesus's disciples. Um, there's a lot of wonderful things um, here in the Upper Room Discourse that we just have to skip over. Um, I would draw your attention really quickly to chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Um, you can read those and you can just see that Jesus tells them that they don't need to worry when they're drug out in front of uh, powerful leaders, um, that God is going to be with them, uh, that they did this to him, they're going to do it, um, they are going to persecute his disciples. Um, and then if you jump over to verse 32 of 16, he says, A time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Uh, what a sad thing for Jesus to be thinking there on that last night of his life, um, that his disciples are going to abandon him. And he says, Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Um, so I want you just to see this because it is setting the emotional context for, the, for these final discussions as well. Jesus is going to look all alone with Pilate, um, but he says, I'm not, the Father's with me. Um, so we get that kind of uh, preview of the trial. Um, and then one of my favorite uh, stories in the New Testament is over in chapter 18. So if you move over there, and Jesus has left the upper room with his disciples, um, Judas has left, Satan enters Judas, and it says, and it's night. So remember the light and dark motif in John, that um, darkness means um, 
spiritual insensitivity or spiritual death. Um, light is spiritual sensitivity or spiritual life. And Judas um, is entered by Satan and it's night. So it's, we, we see from that that just as Jesus' death is inevitable, so is um, Pilate's bad end. Um, so Jesus goes to, the, uh, to an olive grove in chapter 18, and Judas knows where he's at. Um, who knows where Judas looked? Probably the upper room first. And he's bringing a contingent of soldiers and officials to capture Jesus. And they come to him carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And so just a reinforcement that it's night and a spiritually dark time. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing that all this was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, probably drawing attention to his humanity. And Jesus said, I am. I know that your version may say, I am he, or I am the one, uh, but in Greek, he just says, ego eimi. Uh, John is built on I am statements. Um, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the vine. Um, all those statements, I am the good shepherd, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and life. Uh, this, I would suggest, is the final I am statement of John. And it is Jesus declaring his divinity to them. Uh, in a sense, he says, Yahweh. And what happens? Um, it says, when he said this, when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And it's like this pulse of energy um, flows out of him for a moment as he speaks his name and it knocks them down to the ground. If it weren't such a terrible moment, it would be humorous um, because you can just imagine Jesus repeatedly <laughs> knocking them down. Um, and what this demonstrates is that he wins. He has the power to win. His crucifixion is coming. It's inevitable. And yet we get to see here that he is actually the victor. Anything that happens to Jesus is because he lets it happen. Um, so he defeats that little military contingent that comes to him with a word. And when they get back up, and Roman soldiers would have really heavy gear on, um, so it's kind of this humorous uh, picture of, of the chief priest um, trying to help them up and get them back on their feet. Um, and when, the, when they're back on their feet, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they repeat the same thing. And he says, well, that, I'm the guy you're looking for, so let my disciples go. And they do. And they take Jesus uh, to his trial. And at his trial, um, it's, we, we won't spend time there, but you can read it over the next um, chapter. But in the midst of that trial, Peter denies Jesus three times, and we'll pick up for the second and third in chapter 18, verse 25. Simon Peter stood warming himself. So there's Jesus being um, abused, mistreated, and he's warming himself by a fire. And someone comes up to him and says, you are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. So that's the second time. We didn't read the first one, but that's the second time that he's denied Jesus. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, so probably has a pretty good guess of who Peter is, challenged him, saying, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Uh, imagine Peter's devastation at that, um, when he realizes how weak he really was. Um, we've been talking about light and darkness and spiritual hope and spiritual sensitivity. And I just want to um, ask you the question, when does a rooster crow? 
uh, rooster crows. Uh, I had I had chickens. I raised chickens for a while, and the rooster does not crow right at dawn. He's usually before it, um, so it's still a little bit dark. But the sun is getting ready to come up, and the rooster crows. And so I think that even though light is not mentioned, that this is part of that light motif. And Peter, even though he's in this dark, terrible moment of rejecting his savior, um, the dawn is about ready to break on him, and. Uh, spiritual light will come back into him and we'll actually get to see that um, at the end of the story not today but if you were to read through the end of the story Pilate is re or Peter is restored by Jesus all right so let's get, actually get to our interaction between Pilate and Jesus because the religious leaders want to crucify Jesus but they're not allowed to now it hasn't stopped them from trying to stone him in the past but a really public um, execution like crucifixion and a really public execution at this festival time is going to be really challenging for them to pull off. And so they decide to go through proper political channels and go to Pilate. And they bring Pilate, or they bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate says, well, why are you bringing him to me? Verse 30, they say, well, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't bring him. So just go ahead and kill him. And Pilate says, take him and judge him by your own laws. And they say, well, we can't. Uh, we don't have the right to execute anyone. Pilate then goes back into the palace, verse 33, and summoned Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? So that's a key question here. And ultimately, it's a key question that we have to ask ourselves. Um, who is Jesus? What kind of person is he? Is he a king or not? And Jesus says, Is that your own idea or did someone else talk to you about me? Pilate replied, Am I a Jew? In other words, it's not my idea. Why would I care? Why would I know? It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. I want you to notice Jesus's last conversation um, unless you count the thief on the cross. Jesus' last uh, protracted conversation, um, he takes that opportunity to discuss um, his own identity, the nature of his kingdom, and he is showing Pilate love right here at the very end when he would have every reason to just clam up um, and, and talk about injustice of the moment. Um, instead, he is telling Pilate the truth, and that's gonna become important. So Pilate hears him say that his kingdom is from another world. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not earthly. It has some other source. And Pilate says, you are a king then, verse 37. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. He was born to be a king. And for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That's a pretty profound statement for a king to say, that the reason he came, the reason he is there, is to tell the truth. Um, that is not something that we associate with our political leaders. Uh, and not just our current day political leaders, but when you think about kings throughout history, queens, powerful queens throughout history, on the whole, they were not motivated to care primarily for their subjects or to tell their subjects the truth. They usually want to impose their own will, uh, their own uh, strategy for what is best for their country. 
And here is Jesus saying that the reason I came into the world was to tell you the truth. And Pilate asks the question, what is truth? Uh, we're not going to take time on that. It's a really interesting topic. And in fact, in our last sermon series, Anchored, um, I gave a message on the nature of truth. You could pause this sermon and go listen to that sermon and then come back to this sermon. That would be a lot of fun on this um, Palm Sunday morning. Pilate said, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. So they are offered back their king and they say, no, we want a rebel leader. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. We know from other passages that they struck him on the head. So the king, Jesus, is dressed up in robes and a, and a crown of thorns and mocked as a king, repeatedly beaten, repeatedly struck. Um, he's flogged. He is, um, he is starting to die. That's what this is. So Pilate is perhaps trying to satisfy their bloodlust. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, verse 4 of chapter 19, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Yes, I'm beating him to death, but I see no reason to. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he proclaimed himself to be the Son of God. And so their argument is that because Jesus has identified himself as Yahweh, he has to die. And if he weren't Yahweh, they would be right, according to the law. Pilate heard this. He heard that Jesus had proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, and he was even more afraid. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. He went back inside the palace. And in fact, um, we know from an, another uh, gospel that Pilate's wife has been having dreams about Jesus, and she has urged him to uh, stay far away from Jesus and to leave him alone. So Pilate is now scared. And he goes back into Jesus and he says, where do you come from? Remember, Jesus had told him, my kingdom comes from somewhere else. And so, Je so Pilate says, well, where do you come from? Jesus gave him no answer. I don't think Jesus is trying to play a game. I think Jesus is beaten and bruised uh, and exhausted. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have power to free you or crucify you? So Pilate uh, reminds Jesus of his power and of his authority. And Jesus reminds him of truth. Here at the very last, Jesus is speaking truth to Pilate. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You think you get your power derived from Caesar, but he says, I'm telling you the truth, your power comes from God. That's what he's saying to him. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but not hard enough. The Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
So the religious leaders want Jesus dead. They want him out of the picture. <clears throat> and until now, they wanted him dead because of his blasphemy, supposedly. But now they latch on to the idea of kingship. They reject Jesus as their king, but they're going to latch on to this because they see it as politi politically um, expedient. It's something that Pilate will understand. And so they tell Pilate, um, if you accept Jesus as a king, we're going to go tell on you to Caesar. This concerns Pilate a lot, and you can go ahead and stop and Google this and just see what Pilate's reign had been like. He had gotten in trouble with Caesar already, the way he handled some rebellions, uh, some too lenient, some too harsh, some flexing his muscle too much and angering people unnecessarily. And so he's on thin ice with Caesar. And so this um, threat of tattletale makes him back down. He says to them one last time, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And he says, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Um, that is a shocking statement for the religious leaders of Israel to say that they have one king and that king is Caesar is um, mind-boggling because they prided themselves on the lineage of David, uh, of being kings in the line of Solomon. They wanted their own rule, and here they are, so desperate to get rid of Jesus that they are willing to give up um, Yahweh as their king and accept Caesar. They got to that point. You ask yourself, well, how in the world did they get to that point? And they got to that point... Um, right after Lazarus is, or right before Lazarus is raised from the dead, um, chapter 11 of John. Well, I've said it right and then said it wrong, and now I'll say it right. Right after Lazarus is raised from the dead, um, many Jews, chapter 11, verse 45, um, who had come to visit Mary and saw what Jesus did, put their faith in him. And so many of the religious leaders saw what Jesus had done, and they believed like, how do you say no to resurrection or to the raising from the dead? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told on him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees team up, which they're enemies, so that's amazing. And they say, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our place, our power, possibly our temple, and our nation. What got them to this point is their lust for power. They are so desirous of power that they will give up kingship of Yahweh and submit themselves to Caesar in order to get rid of Jesus, to retain that power. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, and that's the end of the discussion between Jesus and Pilate. But here's what happened next. So they crucified Jesus. We're back in chapter 19, verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate and said, don't write the king of the Jews, but write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they're angry about his tweet. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written.
So what was Pilate's problem? And here's our landing point for the day. Um, the thing that I would like us to be thinking about is what was Pilate's problem? Pilate's problem was that he recognized Jesus as a king. He wrote it on a sign. But look what he wrote. Jesus, the king of the Jews. He's already told us earlier in this passage that he's not a Jew. Pilate's problem is that he recognized who Jesus was, but refused to submit to who Jesus was. In other words, Pilate is saying, Jesus is a king, but he's king of those people, not king of me. He has no obedience to the new command of the king that he loves his neighbor as Jesus loved him. Here is Jesus telling him the truth, caring for him right at the end of his life, and Pilate is not behaving the same way. He's preserving himself. And so my concern for us within the church is that we can know all the right stuff about Jesus. We can recognize that he is the king. We can recognize that he is Yahweh, that he's God. We can recognize a whole host of things, but not submit ourselves to it. I think all too often I, probably you, are just like Pilate. We will say the right stuff about Jesus. We'll write it on a sign. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll put it on Twitter. Uh, wherever it is that we are interacting with people, we'll wear uh, a Jesus shirt or we'll have a Bible on our desk or a verse above our, our, above our, our desk at the cubicle. But we refuse to submit ourselves to his commandment. We accept Jesus as Savior, but not King. And we can't do that. That is not possible, according to Scripture. This morning, I don't know um, where you are, what your relationship is with Jesus. If you have never accepted Jesus as your King, um, then I would urge you to do so, because there are only two kingdoms in the world. There's Jesus's and there's the enemy's. For years, I grew up with the language of asking Jesus into our heart, asking Jesus to be our savior. And while those things are not bad, uh, they are not the full picture and they, they may rob us of eternal life. If we could think that we can simply have um, a savior with no requirements, if you've, ne if you've never accepted Jesus as your king, I would urge you to do so. And if you have, then I would ask us the question, are we obeying his commandments? And there's a lot of things he said, but if we just look at this one amazing commandment of loving each other in the way that Jesus loved us, we can ask ourselves a lot about our relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is really our king, then what should our lives look like? How will we be loving each other? And maybe, honestly, it's a little easier to love each other during a pandemic. There's social distancing. Um, we can keep people at an arm's length or a computer's length 
away from us. The time will come when we will be out of this and we'll be back to normal life. We'll be at the water cooler with people who frustrate us, who anger us, of whom we're jealous. And my question is, will we love them the way Jesus loved us? With self-sacrifice. Kip's going to um, talk to you about some other opportunities to serve, um, so I'm sure that's coming up next. Um, but I would encourage you to be asking yourselves as family, who do we need to be serving and loving right now? How do we go about doing that right now in the midst of this um, difficult time? And then be ready to ask ourselves that again when things get back to normal. I hope that you have a great Passover weekend. If you're doing Passover, um, I hope that you have um, a great Palm Sunday day. And we look forward to the resurrection of Jesus next week.